I'm reading from the book of Ruth, chapter 2 and verse 4 and 5. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Could you say the first two words with me? And behold. Can you say that again? And behold. He said unto the reapers, these are his workers, the staff. These are the people who work for him his laborers. A greeting, the Lord be with you. They answered him, the greeting, the Lord bless thee. Then Boaz said unto his servant that was set over the reapers, whose damsel is this? And behold, say that again. Could, could I read it in another version? Help, I'll help you. Verse 4. Um, I'd like to read it in the NIV, if you could. If you have the NIV, that, that's the version I wanted to read it in. Got that? Ah, thank you. Because this is declarative. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. He greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they said. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? Amen. The Lord is in this house. Now, he's not just in this house because we can feel him. Just because you can feel him or don't feel him doesn't indicate where he's at. Don't let your emotions confuse you. He's in places you've never felt him. (laughs) I ask you, do you have to feel him for him to be present? I want to tell you, even when you don't feel him, he's present. And when, when you don't see him moving, he's moving. When you don't see him working, he's working. When you're not aware of him, he's aware of you. I don't want to get caught up in my emotions to think that God's only moving when I feel chills. He's moving when I don't feel anything. Job said, I looked for him on my right, left, and front, and back. I couldn't find him. But I'm going to tell you, the Lord ordered his steps. He knew exactly where he was. Just preach these words just then. And we pray the Lord's blessing. It's in this house. Everyone said amen. Amen. Thank you and you may be seated. As indicated on the screen, by the time I'm completed with the Boaz sermons, there are three. I'll preach one at a time. the time I'm completed with the Boaz sermons, you'll probably have heard overlapping descriptions of the same biblical narrative. So be it. 
Even still, the scripture is layered with meanings and lessons far beyond any sermon or series ever presented or expressed. No teacher or preacher has ever expounded the entirety of God's fathomless, imponderable, immeasurable word. The Bible gives us a real-life story in a book simply titled Ruth. I'd like to tell all of you, the young people included, and the children, this story. I'll do it in segments. Incredibly enough, Ruth really should not be in the Bible. She was not a Jew. She was not from Hebrew descent. In fact, as we discover in time, Ruth comes from a very corrupt society, a people who are distant cousins of Israel. We know them as the Moabites. The Moabites. I'll give you several instances They were enemies of Israel. Here's one of the judges. He said, follow me. The Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Here's in the kings. They rose up early in the morning. The sun shone on the water. The Moabites saw the water on the other side. They saw it red as blood. They assumed this blood, the kings are surely slain. They've smitten one another. Go ahead, Moabite, go take the spoil. When they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them. But they went forward, smiting the Moabites, even in their country. Here's Elisha. He died. They buried him. And the bands of Moabites invaded the land in the coming year. Here's Ezra, chapter 9. This is God speaking through him. When these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, they've not separated themselves from the people of the land. They've done according to the abominations, even of the Canaanites, and then there's a lot of ites there. <laughs> Among them are the Moabites. For they have taken their daughters for themselves. They were intermarrying with heathen people. So that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands, heathen lands, And the hand of the princes and the rulers have been chief in their trespass, their sin, the Moabites. Few nations were corrupt as Moab. And the people of Israel had lived with Moab's oppressing hand. Their continual invasions, their gods, Kamash, the god of the Moabites. The book of Ruth begins with a man in debt. His name is Elimelech. And Elimelech is from the country of Judah. In fact, he specifically lived in a little city that they used to call the city of a small loaf, meaning it was like a small loaf of bread. We know the name of that city as Bethlehem. Elimelech was from Bethlehem. But times were tough. He owned land. He had things to his discretion in his hands, but he fell on hard times. We don't know how, perhaps... He was a poor money manager. Maybe he overextended himself, spending too much money too soon. 
he was in debt and he needed work and his small family, his two sons and his wife, Naomi, they, they were struggling. But instead of staying in the land of his fathers in Judah, Elimelech thought it a good idea to leave Judah and move to Moab. Can you imagine he went to work in Moab, the place of the arch enemies of Israel? See, there's employment in Moab, and Elimelech made the mistake that so many people make even today. He left the place of promise so that he could make some money. He was tired of struggling in Bethlehem. Moab had work. So Elimelech moved his family, his wife and his two sons. Perhaps he thought he'd come back and restore his property of his family name. Maybe he thought, I can always get back. I can return. Sure, I can go back. I'll be back someday. Let me get enough money and I'll come back. Let me get my life in order. And I'll get back to the land of promise. Let me go somewhere for a little bit and then when I come back, it'll be better then. But sadly, Elimelech never made it back to Judah. He died, the Bible says, in Moab. In Jewish tradition, Elimelech would never have imagined his sons ever marrying Moabite girls. But Elimelech died and there was no father to lead them as to where they should go and who they should marry. So the sons, both of his sons, married girls from Moab. The fact is, you're probably going to marry who you date or court who you're around. See, fatherless sons have to make their own choice. And in that particular case, they chose Moab. Ten years will pass. And one after the other, in succession, for no apparent reason, we're not privy to it, both of the sons passed away. Malon and Kilian, they both died. Now there are no men to make money and to support Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. The fact might grind you a little bit concerning our modern thought, but in those days, most of the income, perhaps all of it, came from the men. And the men in their lives have died, and Naomi is left to fend for herself. She has no standing in Moab. Her home is not in Moab, it's in Judah, and she knows that she has to return. Naomi knows that back home, at least there are provisions made for poor people. Wheat fields always have something remaining in the harvest because that was written in the law. The corners were to be kept unharvested for the poor. God said, don't reap the corners. But in Moab... Naomi's only survival came through the work of her husband. And then after he died, the work of those sons. With the men in her life gone, she is a beggar with no home and no help. So Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She kisses them. She loves them. I'm going to go back home, she says. But you both stay here. This is your homeland. This is where you're from. Orpah, the oldest daughter-in-law, kisses Ruth. And she turns back to Moab. Her story is now closed. Maybe there's another family waiting for her. Some place where she can go. Some area, some home to find refuge. But Ruth, the youngest daughter-in-law, is altogether different. It seems that whether there is a distant family or not, we don't know. It doesn't appear so. We do know that Ruth is so attached to her mother-in-law 
that she begs Naomi, please don't make me leave you wherever you go. I'll go wherever you live. I'll live there too. Your people will be my people. Did you hear that? Your people will be my people. Don't pass that off so quickly. Ruth was ready to adopt all of the law of Moses and of the law of the prophets. She was ready to change her lifestyle just for her mother-in-law. Your people will be my people. She was willing to change what she ate, how she prepared her food, how she lived, what she looked like. Your people will be my people and your God, whoever he is, he'll be my God too. Don't make me leave you. Ruth positions herself under the arm of her mother-in-law so that there's nothing left in Moab. And maybe it was true. Maybe there was nothing to go back to. So she set herself up for a life as a maid, a helper for an aging woman. Some lonely Moabite girl now, a widow, tasked with learning the Jewish culture and customs and traditions. A widow from the land of the arch enemy of Israel. Her 10-year marriage to Killian was far too short to call it a lifetime, but it was too long to attract another man willing to take her on as his wife. When Naomi went back to Bethlehem, everybody knew her. They greeted her. They even said, the Bible says, they all talked about it. It's Naomi. But Naomi didn't come back the same way. Those years in Moab, they had worn her weary. In fact, that small town said, it's Naomi. But Naomi replied, don't call me Naomi anymore because that name's meaning pleasant. It means pleasant. My name used to mean pleasant. But I have no pleasant thing left in my life. She said, and the Bible says, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Ruth was living with Mara, a worn out, weary old widow. The regrets have mounted up like an impassable mountain. The property, sure, it's there, but she can't work it. It's just remaining in debt. She's a woman with so many problems, and that debt has followed her all these years, so that even Ruth is strapped with the same thing. They're both without. The days will be spent, think of this, with other people who are destitute, all of them penniless and poor. They all search for food. They seek for small places to live, a well to drink from, or some unoccupied area around a creek. There's no thought of buying something of value. No new clothes. No new things for a house of which they have none. It is the daily search for food, grain and meal. It'd be nice to have oil, but that's expensive. So the meal of grain would be simple. Some mixture with some water, so... That's what they ate. Some standalone vegetables, maybe wild onions. If someone was willing, maybe they would share some meat. Naomi and Ruth are just following the well-worn path of others who experienced loss and distress. They are not alone. They're not the only ones who've experienced great loss and distress during the course of their life. Some of you, someone here has experienced the same thing too. Someone listening, even now, is living out the words that I speak. What once was a reality, a strong reality, has been wiped away. There's nothing to show for the years of plenty. The famine has consumed all the good years so that you can barely remember, hardly remember what it was like to laugh and feel secure. Perhaps a succession of bad choices have been made. None of them can be undone. One after the other, like a domino, you tried to stop it, but 
it tumbled everything in your life. You used to see yourself as pleasant. Your name was pleasant, but now everything tastes bitter. Mara has filled the empty cavity that once was filled with joy. But that was a long time ago. And it doesn't have to be death or bankruptcy to cause you to lose joy and contentment. It can be things much less severe. It's a dead-end job or no job at all. It's a child that went astray, a son. He's so far away that you're struggling to see him and worship. Your faith has been stripped of all of its, all of its strength. It's a marriage barely holding on, mostly with all the love wrung out. You survive, you're getting through, but you know it's not right. Or how about an addiction, an addiction to food or illicit drugs or even perhaps prescription drugs or some other thing that haunts you day by day, you know. Oh yes, the easy thing is to cut and run. The enemy of your soul will present you the lush valleys of Sodom like he did with Lot. He'll showcase Moab with a little better life. And many have made those concessions thinking the same thing that Elimelech made. I can get back. I'll get back to my commitment. I'll get back to church. My kids won't be hurt. It'll just be a few months. It'll be okay. They'll be all right. And while Ruth is the understudy of Naomi, Ruth is now on the lowest rung of the ladder. Whatever Naomi sees herself as, Ruth is, be, is beneath her. Naomi knows the people. At least she knows their names. She understands the custom. She grew up in the Jewish tradition. That was her homeland, Judah. Ruth knows no one. Naomi has familiarity to give her at least some basis of understanding. But Ruth is a fish out of water. Some Jewish scholars have mused whether the people of Bethlehem even accepted Ruth. She's the enemy of Israel. Even though Ruth has never raised her voice or a sword, all the history of war is set against her. She is the focus of a thousand conversations, of hundreds of battles. The Jewish scholars point to her migration as mostly unwanted. Her God is Kamesh. They serve Jehovah. She serves a false God. Ruth and Naomi have no future, even in Bethlehem. They follow the shears by day. They find some comfortable place by night, but it's never really comfortable. The days of harvest is for food. They, they find the minimal to be the normal. They live off the good graces of other people, handing out portions. That's the life of Ruth and Naomi. Two widows, one aging, one a middle-aged woman. And then the Bible gives us these words... And behold. Woo. And behold. Wait a second. You don't even know what that is. Let's clap out of peer pressure. Woo. What does it mean? I don't know, but I, she was excited. I hope that excites you. Wow, and behold, I'd like you just to, for a moment, you don't all, you're not all going to do this. See, I already know. There's a handful of people that will never do anything I ask them to do. But for a moment, raise your eyebrows, turn to someone, and say with your best exclamation, and behold, do it right now. 
Okay, use your hands. Use your hands. And behold, like an Italian. And behold. Grinding out the day. I'm talking about loss. I'm talking about tragedy. I'm talking about no hope. I'm talking about living in an unfamiliar place. And behold. Now the King James Bible. This translation given in 1611. Is filled with phrases and scriptures that are often impossible for us to grasp. We have a difficult time grasping. The gravity of the words that I just spoke to you are far more than you think. Because, and behold, in our vernacular, well, it never really happens. And behold the choir. And behold my wife. I like to hold her. And behold the church. We went home one day and I think it was Roman had cleaned the house or something. He picked up something and, and it was so great. Roman had done something so wonderful. He was probably, I mean, maybe six or seven years old and maybe eight years old. He said, and, then look, and I, we said, oh, this is wonderful. And Reagan was three years younger, so he could have been four or five. And he was so excited. He saw the expression on our face as Roman just put his hands out like this and said, look, dad, look, mom. It's wonderful. And we had a playroom just off of the house. It was a little sunroom where all their toys were. And he said, he said, come look at the playroom. He, he didn't really think about what was in the playroom. He wanted to show us something too. And he opened the door and it was just a wreck. And he opened the door and he went like this and said, who made this mess? <laughs> and be like, oh wait, who made this mess? Let me tell you. In the most real, most literal translation, the two words that you spoke, the actual words were translated today's vernacular, just then. Just then is the change. You see, it's the moment in the moment. That's the moment when the tide completely turns. A worn out widow woman is bending out, bending down, picking up fallen strands and stalks of wheat. Her daughter-in-law widowed. Is picking up wheat. But just then has come in. And the turning of the position is about to be set. In fact the motion. That moment. The motion is about to change. Their whole lives are about to change. Ruth the Moabite. The widow. The poor. The penniless. The insolvent. In debt. Indigenous. Is about to be made into a bride. With comfort. And a home. And a husband of distinction just then is bigger than you think. In the middle of her baseness, living out the inevitable life of a once married childless woman of Moab, now living in Judah, just then Boaz shows up and says, who is that woman? And not just a woman, he says, who is that young woman? <laughs> See, the reason why we don't really grasp it is because we don't know who Boaz is. Boaz is a man of means. He's got money. He's got wealth. He's got prestige. He, what he doesn't have is a bride and he doesn't have a son. But he doesn't look at her in her state. 
Boaz is not looking at the low position of her life. He's not looking at a maid or a handmaiden. He's not looking as a poor, at a poor person. He carries no judgment in his heart. No judgmentalism in his voice. He doesn't see her as indigent or used up. Just then has just showed up. And I say tonight to you, to somebody, that when God is ready, just about the time you think your life will always be bitter and you're going to live with bitterness, just then God comes in and he changes in a moment, in an in a instant. And in a moment, here, Pastor, God changes the scene. I tell you that someone has been waiting in the mire and the mud and the muck for a long time. But the just then God is about to come into his holy habitation. And when he comes, he's going to do it in a moment. He's going to do it in a twinkling. He's going to change you from the low position that you are and where. Here, Pastor. And almost always in the Bible, almost always, when he healed people, it was a quick work. The Bible says, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And immediately his eyes are open because God can do and will do a quick work. He's going to do a quick work. Hear, when I, hear me when I preach. God is an immediate God. We are serving a God who with an utterance of a single word, the worlds were formed. And with a single word, he can change your entire world just then and behold just then I was down I was low I was struggling I was in debt I was lonely I was a beggar I was alone but just then the Lord showed up and said who is that guy Come on, I know some of you, you came a mighty long way, I get it. But one day the Lord looked at you and said, I'm going to lift you up. And a quick work was done. I'll tell you what I'm praying for. I'm praying for a quick work. I need God to do a quick work. I know he can do things in succession. I know he can do things in incremental steps. But I'm praying God will do a quick work in the lives of people. So that you wake up one day and say, it was here but now it's gone. I was struggling but now I'm free. I was blind but now I see. Help me. Romans 9.28. What did Paul say? For he will finish the work. Romans 9, 28. And cut it short in righteousness. Because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. God doesn't need time to figure out your situation. He's not scratching his head trying to find out what the solution is. And behold, he cometh. God is not plotting your rescue. But in a moment, in a twinkling of eye, he's going to return. And much like his return, he's able to change your situation in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. God is able. He's a just then God. Just give me the small phrase that I put on that. The next phrase in Isaiah. Because I think this is something you ought to underline. Isaiah 19. See, the Lord operates different than you operate. Now I know we have to wait on the Lord. I know that we have to, we have to, we have to seek out God. I understand that. But I know that when the Lord comes, He doesn't labor to get the work done. I've had too many missionaries tell me about people they laid hands on and tumors fell on the ground. 
Too many people have talked about the Lord healing their body in a moment of time. And we laid hands on them and they walked back to the seat and immediately all the pain was gone. We have doctors who talk about rehabilitation. The Lord doesn't need time to rehabilitate your life. He can do it right now while I'm preaching. He doesn't need to wait a few months to see if you're worthy of the measure because when he shows up and just then God can change everything. And I'll tell you why he does it. Because God has a vehicle and he likes to ride on a particular vehicle. It's not a car or a motorcycle. It's not a horse and a buggy and a carriage. It's not a truck. The Bible says that the Lord, you put it on the screen, he rides on a swift cloud. I'm going to tell you right now, the Lord can take your situation you think it's impossible to recover from. And by the time you wake up in the morning, everything you struggle with could be wiped away because our God rides on a swift cloud. He's a quick God. He's an immediate God. He can do anything. God is an immediate God. He's a just then God because Ruth is struggling. The Bible is just leaving us with these gaping holes. Thank God the Jewish people have, have they've uncovered things. They, they have talked about it. Their oral tradition of law and passing down the stories. They've told us we know enough to know these women are struggling. They have nothing. They're going back and they're struggling. But as they're struggling, as they're following, they're not even working. They're not working for money. They're not working for, for shekels. They're not working for gold they're just following behind the people who are working and they're picking up the scraps they're picking up the corners they're trying to get enough wheat to grind it into a meal maybe just for the day maybe if they're lucky for a couple days but just then Boaz the owner of the field shows up and he looks at his main man and he says hey God bless you God bless you and then the next statement he says tell me who does that woman belong to what he does what she doesn't know is that he's in search of a bride he's in search of someone he wants to marry and he's looking at her but he doesn't see her as a poor down and out used up widow he's looking at her she's precious she's pleasing to me I think I'd like to have her I want to know her I wonder how I can get here hear me and just then everything's about to change God is showing up and he says to you you may not feel good about yourself and you may be down and low but I've come here right now to change your life I've come to pick you up. I've come to marry you. I'm interested in you. You don't have to know everything about the tradition. You don't have to know everything about the customs. But there is a groom looking for a bride. And a Justin God is about to change your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wish somebody would clap their hands in this house. I wish somebody would shout out to God. Because you were not a people, but now you're a people. You were out, but now you're in. You were gone, but now you're found. You were out there, but now you're inside. I cannot tell you how many people I've 
I've talked with, I'd like to say I've counseled, but I don't even know if there's counseling. I, I doubt that I, whatever I said even rose to that level. <laughs> when they told me they were struggling, they didn't have the job that they wanted. Oh, they were struggling and weeping and crying and down on their luck. And time and time again, I'd say to them, listen, it only takes one phone call and you'll lose that heavy burden. It only takes... <laughs> Because when you're single and you're lonely, <laughs> and you, you never get to go to the marriage retreat, <laughs> and everybody talks about how good it is, <laughs> you know where I'm going. Go over there, Brother Grant. Sit over there. <laughs> and everybody talks about the lovely lovelies. <laughs> <laughs> and you've seen everybody holding hands uh-huh. and hugging and Valentine's Day cards. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and just then, <sighs> shows up. Sits on the front row by the side. I know you. And just then makes his way and starts the courtship. And now something has happened because you see, your days can be changed in one moment. Your life can be changed in one moment. Listen, you know who you are. You've talked to me about the job and the situation and the money. But a just then moment, a just then God came along. And he gave you what you didn't expect. And he supplied something to you that you didn't earn. And you couldn't get by yourself. Hear me. Don't think that God hasn't, hasn't left you. Don't think God has left you. Don't think God has given up on you. Because in a moment of time. Don't think your children are too far from God. No matter how far from God, it only takes one service in the powerful presence of the Lord. Let let me read a little bit to you. This is the plan of God. He wanted to have communion with Adam and Eve in the garden, but they disobeyed God. The Bible says he walked with them in the cool of the day. His voice was a communion. But disobedience destroyed the connection between the creator and his creation. The Bible says that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, which means that in the mind of God, he knew what was going to happen. He prepared for it. But to get to the lamb, God had to give them the law because the law always came before the lamb. And before the law, God had to deliver his people from 430 years of bondage. They were in bondage. They couldn't receive his law while they were in bondage. He had to set them free. But his purpose and his covenant was never to remain at Sinai. That was the mountain where God gave the law. Moses went up, remember, and he came back down with tables of stone. Then he broke them. He went back up. He had to chisel them by hand. 
See, if you won't get angry, you'll have less work to do. God wrote him with his own finger the first time. Moses had to chisel him out the second time. Same words, different process. But that law was only a law of stone. The prophet Ezekiel wrote about the intention of Mount Sinai, the law. Mount Sinai was 50 days after the Red Sea. 50 days after the Passover. Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. Ezekiel told about the intention of God. Here's what he wrote. A new heart will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. Because you'll have my spirit. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. Because I'm going to put my spirits within you. He's forecasting what's going to happen. But it hasn't happened for thousands of years. God wants to get back in communion with his people, his creation. From the fall all the way through to the law, all the way through, he's going to give us a new law. It won't be a law on tables of stone, but it's going to be a law in our hearts. And this is what God did. I call them God's suddenlies. Because when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly... There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Hear me. The Holy Ghost was fulfilled in a moment of time. Let me read again. Paul, who was once called Saul, is persecuting the Christians. He's on a war path in search of more destruction. He's more than complicit in the death of Stephen. He's an encourager until God shows up. He's on his journey. He came near Damascus. And the Bible says, And suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And a voice came from heaven and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Hear me. In a moment of time, God can give revelation. The Bible says, Paul and Silas were preaching the word and the gospel. And for it, they were beaten and thrown into the inner prison. At the cost of the jailer's own life, they were held in the prison. (laughs) But at midnight, Paul and Silas started to sing praises unto God. And they sang loud enough, the Bible says, and the prisoners heard them. Here are the next words. And suddenly, just about the time you were bound up, you were doing good. You did the right thing. You were punished for the right thing. Just then, God shows up. He rearranges the life. He shakes the prison. You see... He didn't just break them out with an earthquake. They invited him in. (laughs) When you get him in and you begin to magnify him, he becomes what he already is. And the bigger he gets, the smaller that jail cell gets. He just flexed himself, rattled that prison cell, and their shackles and their bonds fell off. Hear me? And suddenly, let me, let me tell you, I know there's a process for our minds to be renewed and healed and restored, but I also believe that God can change your situation even right now where you sit. 
Either way, he's a just on time God. He's a right on time God. He's a just then God. He's an immediate God. He's a suddenly God. Come on now. He's in this house right here tonight. He wants to right now and behold change your life. Seven years ago, a pastor friend talked to me while the preacher was preaching. The man who had a tumor inside of him began to worship the Lord. sat in the very back of the church and began to worship the Lord. He had a handkerchief like this. He prayed for deliverance. Lord, I need deliverance. I need it right now. And he coughed. He coughed. He coughed violently and in a moment, he was afraid he didn't want to make a big scene he took his handkerchief covered his mouth he coughed the tumor right out wrapped it up in his handkerchief went and showed the pastor brought it back to the doctor the next day he never had a problem with the tumor again while he was while he was in the service the tumor came right now that may sound a little gross to you but I'll tell you what he was shouting he said I'd like to have kept that thing but I threw it away hear me there's enough evidence on the x-rays to show that it had been there and just then hear me let me tell you about the just then God you're dealing with trash and junk and mess I'm going to tell you God can clean all that up and right now in a moment of time he can change your life hey I got a lot of witnesses in this house but I got to go back to Mark Samuels who's not here tonight he's working Mark Samuels had a debilitating disease. His liver was dying. Raise your hand, Stacy. His liver was dying. And they said, you may qualify for a drug. If you get the drug, you'll be in a vegetable state most of your life. You won't be able to work anymore. Most people can't even take the drug. But we'll find out if your body will accept the drug, we'll inject you. And they did, and his body accepted it. Every Monday, he was going to have a shot. Went to the doctor on Mondays. He was going to get this shot and it was going to help him recover or at least maintain whatever liver he had left. But one night, he came to church. (laughs) And he made a deal with God. Don't ever make a deal with God. No one's ever outdealt the Lord. And he watched the people shout. Of course, if you know Mark Samuels, He's not real uh, exuberant in his worship. Come on, help me, Stacy. He cries and raises his hands. Wonderful. He told the Lord, if you heal me tonight, I'll run around this church. You don't make deals with God. And the Lord, he felt, spoke back to him in his mind. And God said, If you run, I'll heal you. You're not waiting on God. He's waiting on you. He just already showed up. Why 
don't you just know that the Lord has showed up. He's a just in God. He's a right on time God. He can do anything. While you're sitting here, he can do anything. Keep standing. There's no evidence that Mark was healed on Sunday night. All I know was that Mark Samuels ran around the church several times, which surprised me. Uh huh. But next, but the Monday after, the next next day, he went in to get the shot. They gave him the shot, and his body rejected it, and he had a reaction from head to toe. Say it, Stacy. He broke out in hives from the head all over his body, and the doctors could not figure it out. And they said, your body has already accepted the medication. This is impossible that it would now reject it. So they went back in to test, and they found out that not only did his body reject the medicine, but his liver had been healed. Your liver does not heal. And the doctors can't heal it. But a just then God can heal it on a Sunday night. Now I'll preach the word to you. Here's the word. The Lord is in this house. I don't know where you're at, but if you're kind of crawling out of the mire, if you feel low, if you feel down, if you're trying to pick up enough just to get by, I want to tell you that the Lord who owns the whole field, he just walked into the house and he knows everything and he's looking for you and saying, I'm looking for you. Who is that? I'm preaching about it all the time, God. I'm preaching about a just in God. Hey! Look, if you want to take the medication all your life, go ahead. But how about you take a chance on the Lord on Sunday night on April the 7th? Why don't you say this is the night that the Lord picked me up, changed my life, changed my mind, changed my thoughts, took away my fear, took away my doubt. This is the day I laid some things down. And immediately, revelation, and immediately, revelation. See, this is what I'm praying. Give immediate revelation of the mighty God in Christ immediate revelation to everyone who struggles give immediate revelation to the name of Jesus and baptism it's the only way Jesus people were baptized in the New Testament the only way was in Jesus name so I pray immediate I pray for everyone who is bound up to be immediately set free I pray right now in the name of Jesus by the authority of the word of God and the power that's in the name of Jesus I set you free tonight once and for all I pray right now that you'd never go back you'd never get in prison again you'd never be bound again you'd shed that old that old nature you've laid aside. In the name of Jesus, let it be.